Last week, if you remember, we started to talk about Ephesians. We're going to be talking about Ephesians for several weeks. Um, This morning, we are going to take a look at the greeting. We're just going to look at the first two verses. I know that doesn't seem like a lot, but there's a lot in the first two verses that maybe you haven't noticed before. It's actually really inciting because it has um, implications for the rest of the letter. We're also going to talk about a framework this morning that is going to be helpful for us as we work our way through the book of Ephesians, specifically the first three chapters. We'll come back and look at it in um, different applications as we move along. Just a little bit of review. Last week, we talked about um, different kinds of context, four different kinds of context. Today, we're going to use a lot of our narrative context. Remember, that is where does this letter fit in the overall context of the whole biblical story? And we'll also use a little bit of our cultural context as we talk about Paul and where he gets some of his words and how he uses those in his letters. And also, if you didn't grab last week a packet from the little table in the back, um, go ahead and do that, because that is something that we're going to be referring to a lot in the next several weeks as we go through. I think I forgot to tell you last week, this packet in this translation is a Bible project resource, and so are the graphics that I'm going to be using today. And um, I took their class um, about the book of Ephesians, and so a lot of the resources that I'll be sharing with you are from them. Just so you know, I didn't come up with this awesome stuff on my own. That didn't just come from my own brain. It's out there um, for anyone to access. So just wanted to let you know that. The first thing I want to point out in this translation that's in your packet that might stand out to you as odd is a particular word. Um, This word right here. I'm just going to go ahead and read the whole thing first. Paul, an apostle of Messiah Jesus, through the will of God to the holy ones who are in Ephesus, also are believing in Messiah Jesus, grace to y'all and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Messiah. Have you ever heard the word y'all in your translation? It's an interesting choice, but there's a reason for it. So in English, uh, we have one word, you. And when I use the word you, I could be talking about you, Ruth, or I could be talking about you, CCF, but I use the same word, right? Does that make sense? In Greek, there are two words for you. One of them is singular and one of them is plural. And all, every single you in the letter to the Ephesians is plural. Every last one of them, not one of them is singular. So it's helpful to translate all of the use in Ephesians to y'all. It helps us get a better corporate sense of the letter, that the letter was written to a group of people. It also helps us see it uh, more in terms of, it's not written to me, but it's written for me. And it's written to the church, this whole group of people. So that's the explanation for y'all. You'll see it all through this translation as we, as we move through. The letter to the Ephesians is addressed from Paul to the holy ones. This is a really important word. There's a lot of implication in this word that we're going to break down. A lot of your translations, depending on your Bible, will have this as saints. It'll say, to the saints who are in Ephesus. But the word saints 
cuts off a lot of English speakers from the full meaning of this word. Um, it, some people even associate the word saints with something like St. Francis or St. Patrick. That is definitely not what Paul means. Um, he also doesn't mean really good people. Like, you know how you talk about your grandma and you say that she's a saint? And that's also not what Paul is talking about. Holy ones is a much more helpful translation. Uh, this word in Greek means to be set apart by or for God to be holy or to be sacred. And addressing the letter to the holy ones is significant, like I said, because it ties into the rest of the letter. Let's talk about holiness, because that's what's highlighted here. Firstly, holiness is an attribute of God. God is holy because he is unique. He's unique in a way that nothing else or no one else is, ever has been, or ever will be. He is the one-of-a-kind creator of all life and all reality. He is truly, in the greatest sense, set apart. There is nothing, he has an otherness that no one else possesses. He is holy. Remember in Isaiah, the seraphim are around God's throne, and they keep saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. So all of creation, by virtue of being created by him, is a declaration of his holiness. Whenever we look out at it, it just declares the otherness of God. So firstly, God is holy. Why did Paul use this term, the holy ones? Um, where did this come from? Anytime you're looking at things Paul says in the New Testament, it's helpful to get into your cultural context and to get inside Paul's head, think the way that he thought. We know that Paul grew up on the Old Testament scriptures, right? That he was immersed in that, that that was essentially his media. And um, it permeated the ways that he thought and all of the ways that he communicated. So it's helpful to look and see, is the Holy Ones in the Old Testament? It is. It's actually a really common term um, used in the New Testament, or in the Old Testament, sorry. In the Old Testament, there are two groups that are referred to as Holy Ones. <clears throat> the first one is Israel. Israel is called to be a holy nation in Exodus, essentially a nation of holy ones. Um, they are set apart, and they are to become like God in his holiness. They're invited into his proximity, into his presence. And by virtue of that, they also become holy. In Exodus 19 at Mount Sinai, God says to them, if you obey my voice and keep my commands, you'll be my treasured possession, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And in Leviticus 11:44, he says, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. So he's inviting them into his presence and he is holy, and they become holy, and they also have to set themselves apart. They don't do things like the rest of the world. They become holy like the Lord. So when they're faithful to the covenant, God's presence is with them, and they share in his holiness. That's the first group. Um, the second group called holy ones in the Old Testament are the spiritual beings. Um, this is God's heavenly spiritual family. Remember, um, there was God, creator, 
first, and then he creates his spiritual family, and then he creates the world and matter and all that stuff, and he creates human beings. BJ's talked a lot about God's spiritual family. Um, They're the host of heaven. They're around God's throne. So this is his spiritual family that's loyal to him. And they're referred to as such in the prophets and um, in the Psalms as well. There's a really particularly interesting one, um, Psalm 89, for a lot of reasons. But I want to focus on verse 5 here. It says, The heavens praise your wonders, Lord, your faithfulness too, in the assembly of the holy ones. So this phrase is important. Um, In the assembly of the holy ones. When this um, Hebrew psalm was translated into Greek in the Septuagint, this word here, assembly, was translated as the Greek word ecclesia. Ecclesia is the word that Paul uses all throughout the New Testament to describe groups of Jesus followers. Ecclesia is the word that Paul uses to describe the church. And um, that has significant implications that he's using this word to describe um, Jesus followers. In Psalm 89, the church of the holy ones are the spiritual beings assembled around God's throne, giving him their allegiance and praising him. You could essentially read this. The heavens praise your wonders, Lord, your faithfulness too, in the church of the holy ones. So we have this connection. Paul is using the same terminology, the assembly of the holy ones from Psalm 89, to refer to these groups of house churches, these groups of believers, as the assembly of the holy ones. And that is really significant for the whole book of Ephesians. It's really important that he's using this term, the holy ones, to refer to them. It is significant because of chapter 2. I need to go forward. So chapter 2, Paul makes a claim about who we are in the spiritual realm, about where our real identity is. Um, he, He makes this claim that God has made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms and Christ Jesus. So you can see these two words are important. He raised us and he seated us. What do you notice about those two words? They're both past tense. Right? It's something that's already been done, something that has already been established. Paul's trying to communicate that this you is sitting here in this room. Um, your realest, truest identity is not that. It is you seated and raised up in the heavenly realms with Christ. That is your true identity in spite of how you see yourself sitting in this room. Who you are and what you're capable of is not limited by right now, but it is secure in your future destiny. And it's also locked in the past at Jesus's resurrection. And now you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. And he is your guarantee, right? He's your hope and your guarantee. He testifies that when you pass through your own physical death, You'll come to your own resurrection. So there's going to be a complete fulfillment of that reality, but we begin to live that heavenly reality right now. And the reason we can do that is because God's kingdom is here 
and now. Chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians are Paul unpacking this revelation about heaven and earth being one. He's unpacking a revelation about you living in your heavenly identity right now and why that's possible. It's so important to grasp. Um, He puts so much work into communicating this idea. If you remember back in November, um, I did a sermon about Paul's apocalypse. If you remember, apocalypse is our English word that comes from a Greek word, and that Greek word is apokalypsis. And it means to reveal or to uncover. When we associate this with an idea, it means something occurs to you or becomes known to you that you had never known before. You have a revelation. You have an apocalypse. Before, we talked about it in terms of the old age and the age to come, remember? And there was an overlap. The elements of the old age are things we associate with the fallen world, like death and violence and captivity to the powers. And the new age was characterized by all the things that we associate with the kingdom of God. So freedom, love, and justice, all of those things. Today, we're going to talk about it in more spatial terms. We're going to talk about it in terms of the two realms. So there's the heavenly or spiritual realm, and then there's the earthly or physical realm. And this is that framework I was talking about that'll be helpful as we work our way through the book of Ephesians. It helps you to conceptualize what Paul is talking about. We'll work our way through a series of pictures. All right. So remember I said the heavenly realm and the earthly realm. They are two distinct spaces. They're distinct, but they are not separate. Um, They are overlaying each other, okay? And if you read through any of Psalms, you'll hear that God is seated on his throne above heaven and earth. That's very common language in the Psalms. So God's on his throne above the heavens. And down here in the earthly realm, you have humans, (laughs) you have people. And to them, the heavenly spiritual realm, that reality has become largely invisible. They don't perceive it for various reasons that the rest of the Bible outlines. They just don't perceive the spiritual realm. It's unseen to them. So then Jesus came, and he lived, and he died, and he rose again, and he was exalted to sit at God's right hand above heaven and earth. So here's Jesus with all things in subjection to him, ruling and reigning. Now, when you and I come into this picture, we look like this guy, and he's like all wrecked here because he has seen the biblical apocalypse. And what that is, is when the bond between heaven and earth, the two realms, becomes visible to you. When you perceive it. And those are moments that are just crazy. The Bible has all kinds of these moments. So heaven invades earth in all kinds of places. Paul had this biblical apocalypse on the road to Damascus when he met the risen Jesus. Um, It could be Moses at the burning bush. That was one of these moments where you see the bond between heaven and earth. Jacob being asleep in a field, and all of a sudden he realizes that angels are ascending and descending, and that there's this bond between heaven and earth. 
the holy of holies in the temple where the presence of God dwells. All of these things, and this can take place anywhere. This graphic is helpful to help us conceptualize what Paul's talking about, but it's not totally spatially correct. I think that if it was, the two circles would just be right on top of each other. They would still be distinct, but they would be completely overlapping because this can take place anywhere. And we experience this in our own lives in those moments where we just know and perceive the manifest presence of God. Those moments and those times where we know that um, there's something going on more than we can perceive with our five senses. And that happens in all kinds of different ways. So as Paul unpacks the biblical apocalypse, this revelation about the spiritual realm, he's going to show you that it looks like human beings are in charge of everything. It looks like they call the shots and they run things. But he's going to tell you that that is not true that there are actually greater powers at work in the world that people do not perceive. And not all of them are Jesus. Some of these powers right here are influencing for death, um, for darkness, for evil, for captivity. And their influence is manifested by people on earth being in captivity to them being dead in their sin and in their transgression and being alienated from God. And then Messiah, people come and put their faith in him and he rescues them from that captivity. He frees them from that captivity and they are no longer subject to that. So they are raised up. Here you are raised up with Jesus in authority. You're no longer in captivity and subject to these powers, principalities, the powers of darkness. You are now free from that. And um, that's what Jesus does for us. One of the things when we put our faith in him. So that's your real identity, seated with Christ in the spiritual heavenly realm. So when Paul speaks about a believer's exaltation into the realm of the holy ones, like it's right here and now, he's, he doesn't talk about it like it's some far removed thing for just the future or like it's some far place in outer space or something. He doesn't talk about it like that. He can talk about it like it's here and now because heaven and earth are one. Because the two realms overlap, heaven and earth. Jesus said that the kingdom of heaven is near. And God's rule and reign is present right now. Jesus prays for God's kingdom to come and for his will to be done. And furthermore, like I said, Jesus' victory over the powers and principalities extends to us. We are freed from that. Do you see how this connects back to the holy ones? Paul is using terms to talk about believers that are used to describe spiritual beings living in authority alongside God in the heavenly realms, because he's communicating to you that that is you in the truest sense, that that is your real identity. And this is all buried just in how he addresses the letter to the holy ones. He's already emphasizing, like, this is your identity. This is your truth. And the more you grasp this and live in this, the more power you are going to be able to express. You're going to be that walking declaration that the kingdom of heaven is real, that there's a spiritual realm, and that there's implications for that to every single person that lives ever. 
you become a declaration of that. Isn't that cool? So what it means for you to start every day um, being exalted with Jesus is that you get to be a part of that forcefully advancing kingdom of God. It means that right now, right now, you rule and subdue creation in the wisdom and in the love of God because heaven and earth are one. And through the power of the Spirit dwelling inside of you, that can be manifested here through you in so many ways. There are endless amounts of applications for this truth. There's nothing that is outside of this discussion. Whatever your politics are, whatever your marriage is, how you parent, what you do with your money, how you are at your job, all of it is a part of this discussion. There's nothing separated from this. It's so important. We spend our lifetime just dwelling. We should just dwell in this idea about what our real identity is. So Paul is going to make some applications of this reality. He's going to talk about it in an ethnic sense. So Jews and Gentiles, no more division, no more hostility. You are now one in Christ that is one application he's going to make of the biblical apocalypse. In chapters 4 through 6, he's going to relate it to the family in the traditional Greco-Roman household. He's going to talk about how does this work between a husband and a wife and parents and children and masters and slaves living in the kingdom of the apocalypse. How should these people relate to each other? And those are not the only applications. There are so many. It's the work of the Holy Spirit in us to show us every day what is the application of this truth of who I really am raised up and seated with Christ in the heavenly realms right now. What does that mean for how I do this situation over here? That's, that's the definition of our lives as Christians. Isn't that powerful to think of yourself that way? We should meditate on that. So chapters 1 through 3 are all about comprehending this reality for ourselves. Paul is going to use a lot of words that have to do with your brain. He's going to talk about understanding. He's going to talk about knowledge. He's going to pray for you to come into a greater depth of those things. And then he's going to show you the implications of what it means to live like that. <clears throat> so that's the holy ones, just buried right there in the greeting already alluding to chapter 2 and about your identity raised up and seated with Christ. There's another portion that I'd like to point out from the introduction that is just interesting. Um, I hadn't really heard this before I took the class. You'll see that um, in this translation, in Ephesus, right here, is put in brackets. And depending on your translation, you might have brackets around it, or you might have a footnote that just tells you that in Ephesus is missing for most of the earliest transcripts of this letter, the earliest manuscripts. Um, it's just not included. And it's very possible that this letter was actually meant to be circulated throughout a region to various house churches rather than just specifically to the church in Ephesus. Um, there's a few indicators that really give this, make a good case for this. Um, the letter actually doesn't mention any specific situations. Paul's not writing to Ephesus to put out a specific fire. Um, we talked about that a little last week in our situational context. We don't really use that as we work our way through the letter to the Ephesians because there's not a specific situation. 
Um, so that's a good indicator that maybe this was to be more widely circulated. The exhortations and the warnings in this letter, they all have a really general tone to them. And there are a few verses, a couple verses here. We know that Paul spent a lot of time in Ephesus, that he had a lot of contact with the church in Ephesus. And these couple verses seem to indicate that the people he's writing to, at least some of them, didn't have face-to-face contact with him. Verse 15 here says, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. So if Paul was there face-to-face with them like he was in Ephesus, it wouldn't be, I heard about it. He would just see it with his own eyes. And the same thing with chapter 3, verse 2 here. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. If he was face-to-face with them like he was with the church in Ephesus, it wouldn't be a matter of them hearing about it. They would just see it with their own eyes. Those are just a couple indicators. Here's a map of the region that they think this letter could have been circulated through. So you can see that here's Ephesus. It's a port city. This is a valley all through here. You can see some of the churches of Revelation here. And this valley would have been a major thoroughfare for travel and for trade of all kinds. And so it's speculated that Paul's letter could have been more addressed to to the churches in the valley and been distributed all up and down this road. Here you can see Colossae. There's a lot of uh, similarities between their letter and the letter to the Ephesians, but their letter was written specifically to put out a certain fire. Well, Ephesians wasn't. So it could have been circulated all through here, and eventually it could have become named to the church in Ephesus because Ephesus was an epicenter for the church in the area. It was the biggest, so the letter may have eventually gotten that name, and they chose to keep it. Before I finish up for today, I wanted to um, look at that graphic that is in the back of your packet. Um, If you have that with you, I think it's on the last page. It looks like this. It's um, this design graphic. I wanted to talk about this. This is a part of our literary context, if you remember us talking about that last week. I was really unfamiliar with this type of context before I took this class. This was new to me, and I found it to be so fascinating, not just to study what Paul is saying, but to study the way that he arranges things in order to make points and make connections and reinforce ideas. It's, it's really beautifully crafted. Not every single one of Paul's letters is as neat and tidy as the letter to the Ephesians, but it's really cool to work through. So you'll see the corresponding parts here. You've got the A's, the B's, the C's, and the culmination here in D. The book itself is divided into two halves. You have chapters 1 through 3 and chapters 4 through 6. And it's divided right in the middle by a big therefore. A really obvious division. So how these correspond. The two A's. The book, besides the greeting, it opens very poetically. You can see in verse 3 there's a shift between the greeting into this poetic writing in verse 3. He starts off with, blessed be God. 
In some of your translations, it'll say, praise be to God. This is a really common beginning for Psalms. So this is essentially a song of praise. And um, they call it the victory song to the Father, Son, and Spirit. There's a lot of Trinitarian elements in these first verses. This corresponds to a song at the end of chapters 1 through 3. People often call that Paul's doxology. It's another song to the Father and to the Son. So you can see this beginning and ending with worship. He's not just inviting you in to engage your brain and get you to understand and comprehend all of these things. He's inviting you into this act of worshiping God, which is going to take you there. So he closes with a song. Moving into B, there's a transition between the song into a prayer. And it's signaled by the phrase, for this reason, which is a very common transition phrase. Its corresponding prayer down here is very similar. It just used slightly different terms to reinforce the same idea. In the beginning of this prayer, in verse 14, chapter 3, is also indicated by the phrase, for this reason. So this entire discussion about who Jesus is, what he did, and who we are in light of that is wrapped and bracketed in worship and prayer. Isn't that amazing? As you begin to comprehend and think about the biblical apocalypse, what that means for you, who Jesus is, who you are in light of that, what he's done for you, I feel like the perfect way to enter into that is through worship and prayer. That's just what begins to come out of him as he starts to unpack this revelation is just worship and God help me. (laughs) That seems very natural to me. C, these two corresponding corresponding parts. Up here, Paul is going to tell a story and he's going to tell it two different ways from two angles. First, he's going to talk about how you were rescued from death. He is going to talk about how you were dead, you were enslaved, you were in captivity to the powers. And from the other angle, here, he's going to talk about how you were also covenantally dead. You were isolated from God, from God's family. And then Messiah rescues you from death and alienation, and he brings you into the covenant people of God. This corresponding section here is where Paul introduces himself as a prisoner of Christ. Those are the words he uses. He says, I'm the prisoner of Christ for you. He goes so far to say that his tribulation is actually the believer's glory. It is their honor that he is in prison for them. And the fact that their leader is a prisoner and that they worship a crucified criminal in the kingdom of the apocalypse, that is their glory. That's their honor. It's not a disgrace to them. Remember last week how we talked about the honor and shame culture. He's redefining that. He's the apostle that is heralding this incredible victory, this rescue from death, and this welcoming into God's covenant family. He's the prisoner of low status, but he's the one that is to herald this huge victory. And just looking at the connection between those two things, it, it shows you, it draws you into that. Where does your honor really come from? I mean, does it come from your status here on earth? It doesn't. 
because here's Paul, the one heralding a cosmic victory that is offered to all people, and he's a prisoner, low status, sitting in prison. So the culmination of chapters one through three is right here, the Messianic Victory Monument, the new temple. This is interesting because if you read the rest of chapters one through three, this is a neat exercise. If you exclude this portion here and read all of the rest of this, think about what would your, what would your climax of this whole thing be? You read all of these amazing things about what Jesus has done and who you are, and what would be the conclusion of that? It might not be, and you're the new temple. You're the messianic victory monument, and you're being built together. Like, it's an interesting uh, metaphor. And to Paul, this is the climax of the whole thing. Why is that? It's, it's really interesting to look into that. It has a lot of implications, particularly as we consider that the Holy Spirit lives inside of us now, that he dwells in us. So it's great to look at why did Paul think that that was most important? So in light of being rescued from captivity and isolation from God, you're being built into the new temple foretold by the prophets. None of this stuff is accidental at all. Remember how we talked about Paul writing his letters and how he put great care into communicating this. Like this idea is so important for believers. He put a lot of care into sharing this. He's going to expound upon it using metaphor, personal testimony, that poetry we talked about, and prayer. Um, And this is essentially meditation literature. These letters, you're meant to read this and reread it and reread it. And as you do that, you'll see these different corresponding parts, they'll reinforce each other, and they'll add different elements that other parts don't add. And by looking at the similarities and the differences between the corresponding parts, you'll begin to build out, build out this fuller picture of the point that the author is trying to make. And they're all linked by repeated words and themes and transition phrases. It's really quite amazing how well-crafted this letter really is. That's all I have for today. Next week, we will go into verses 3 through 14. We will start talking about this song right in the beginning, which is really cool and beautiful. That's what we'll do next week. Let's pray. Lord, what can we, what can we even say other than thank you? It's, you are so good. You are so incredible, Lord. I I pray that you would help us to grasp the import of this revelation, the truth of who we are in you and what you have done, Lord. I pray that you would um, open our eyes to that, that um, that would go deep in our hearts and uh, we would live out of it more and more, Lord. I pray that we would make the declaration of your victory in the way that we live our lives, Show us how to apply it in everything, Lord. I pray that you would increase our sensitivity to your voice. We are your sheep and we hear your voice, Lord. And we stand on that. That is true. And you do speak to us, Lord. Pray that you would increase our sensitivity. Help us to hear you in situations where all the other noise is so overwhelming. We just want to hear your voice. It's our life. We thank you for speaking, Lord. And we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.